Happy Father's Day, fellas. I want you to hear from me as well to all the biological dads, the stepdads, the blended family fathers, the uh, adoptive fathers, the spiritual fathers, the one-day fathers. I salute you. And so just one more time, let's give it up to all the fathers of the house here. You know, when, I, uh, when I became a father, um, not too long ago, but when I became a father, uh, my entire life changed for the better. Come on, somebody, for the better. I'm for the worse. That's what society tries to tell you, for the better. And, um, you know, I have my, my 12-year-old Isaac over here and my 16-year-old Jeremiah. And uh, together with Summer, they are the, they're the joys of our life. But let me just tell you, fatherhood is not for the weak. Come on, it requires a lot. And we know this, right? I mean, this has been the narrative for quite a while, is that fatherhood has been under assault for, for quite a while now, for, for a number of years, and it doesn't feel like the world's getting any better, right? In fact, they actually just compiled, uh, we're on the other side now, they just compiled the 2020 census data, put it together with all the other data, and the numbers still remain pretty true. And so I wanna put it up here for us. So here's, here's the quote. So there's a crisis in America. According to the US Census Bureau, 18.3 million children, one in four, live without a biological step or, or adoptive father in the home. Consequently, there is a father factor in nearly all of the societal ills facing America today. And research shows when a child is raised in a father-absent home, he or she is affected in the following ways. And there's a number, four times greater risk of poverty, seven times more likely to become pregnant as a teen, uh, more likely to have behavioral problems, more likely to face abuse and neglect, more likely to commit crime, two times greater risk of infant mortality, more likely to abuse drugs and alcohol, more likely to go to prison, two times more likely to suffer obesity, two times more likely to drop out of high school. In other words, the story remains true that father absence harms children. Father absence harms children. And here's the problem, guys. Our nation has focused on having a strong economy but is okay having a weak family. And so the problem is this, we have strong businesses, but weak men. And if we have weak men, that means we have weak families. If we have weak families, it means we have a weak nation. And the last words of the Old Testament are really clear on this. God speaks to the father issue. Literally the last words of the Old Testament, Malachi 4, verse five and six, God says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will what? He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Listen, I don't know if you noticed this before. The literally, the last word of the Old Testament is curse. And what happens right now, we are living in a curse in this land and the, the curse is fatherlessness. Fatherlessness is a curse in and of itself because we see the results of fatherlessness in the world all around us. We see cancel culture. Come on, we see entitlement, we see weak people, we see everybody doing what's right in their own eyes, we see godlessness, we see identity issues, it all goes back to the curse of fatherlessness. And so what we tried to do to try and help people's emotions, we tried to say, hey, hey, fathers aren't necessary. Fathers aren't necessary. No, mom can do it all. Come on, single moms, you be the first to say, I cannot do it all, right? I can try, but you can't be mom and dad, guess why, because you're mom. And so dads are dads, moms are moms, right? And I know that's even controversial to say today. How dumb is that? So let me say this. Mothers, you are unique and you are necessary. 
But let me speak this to you men, to you fathers. You are unique. And I don't care what society says, you are absolutely necessary. <laughs> fathers, we need you. We need you fathers. Fathers, we need you. And while we may not have many mothers, I mean, while we have many mothers, we may not have many fathers. And in fact, you know, I came across this quote. That, uh, Ed Cole is a kind of hero in the men's movement. He said this, you're a male by birth, but you're a man by choice. And here's what I know, guys. While the world may be a mess when it comes to fatherhood, as for me and my house right here, here's what we're saying, not so in this house. Not so in victory. What God is doing here at this church at victory is building families. He is building the family right here. God is raising up strong men, come on, who will be strong fathers, who will leave strong legacy for their children and their children's children. God is raising up men who leave childhood behind. Come on, we don't need more grown boys. God is raising up men who leave childhood behind and who build strong families, who lead their families to Jesus. God is repairing the father wound in sons and daughters so that what? So that they can change the story in their family. Listen, some of you, you're changing the story in your family. Maybe your grandfather and your father, maybe they, they didn't get it done, but you can get it done. You can change the story in your family because God is raising up men and women here who are gonna break the curse of fatherlessness off of their families and impart generational blessing to their children and their children's children, children. And here's the thought, okay? I would love to be able to say that the father crisis is new, but it's not in fact, the apostle Paul wrote about it 2,000 years ago. And here's what he did. He sat down at his desk with his typewriter. <laughs> and he did what most of the New Testament is. Right? Most of the New Testament is what we call epistles. It's letters that the apostles wrote to the churches that they had helped to start, uh, bringing um, cor theological correction or um, imparting wisdom to the churches that they lead. And Paul sat down and he wrote a letter to a church that he had started to help, or that he had begun in Southern Greece in a place called Corinth. And that's why we call that letter the Corinthians. Um, and what he did, he brought correction to that church. How many of you know Sometimes we need a father to correct us. Come on, somebody. I, I saw this quote the other day. It said, um, some of us, we don't need Jesus to take the wheel. We need Jesus to pull the car over, take his flip-flop off, and smack <laughs> us upside the head a few times. Um, if you want to know what's led to cancel culture in the world, it's that everybody got a trophy and nobody ever got corrected. And sometimes we need a father to correct us in love. And that's what the letter to the Corinthians, first and second Corinthians is. And right in the middle of that, in chapter four, Paul writes this really strong statement. He says this in verse 14, 15, 16. He said, guys, I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Because even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. And what Paul says is this. He says, guys, there's a whole lot of biology happening. There's not very much spirituality happening. Come on, there's a, there's a lot of bi biological uh, procreation happening, but there's not very much spiritual fathering happening. 
And that's what he calls. What he's saying is we have a lot of dads, but we don't have many fathers. Come on, somebody, there's a difference between a dad and a father. Because a father imparts, a father corrects, a father course corrects, a father calls up and calls out, a father makes you want to imitate him. Listen, this is God, put, God, God hardwired father's hearts like this. We didn't have a meeting, right? Guys, we didn't have that meeting. But God put this on the inside of us, that the greatest compliment you could ever give a father is for his child, specifically his son, to look at him and say, Dad, I wanna be just like you when I grow up. Why? Because there's something inside a father that makes his kids want to imitate him, sometimes even good or bad. And here's the deal, guys. Every single one of us, every single male here can grow up to be a man, can grow up to be a father. Listen, because fathering is about biology, but even more important than that, it's about spirituality. And every single one of you, listen, I don't care how old you are, you can be a spiritual father. Because spiritual fathering is simply taking somebody under your wing, passing the baton to them, giving to them what you've received. Listen, you could be 20 today. You could, you could father a 12-year-old. You could, you could be involved in one of the ministries here. You could take a, a boy underneath your wing and give him, I don't know, even if you didn't receive much, but you can still give him the good that you have. And that's what I'm calling out of you today. That's what I'm calling out of you today. Listen, some of you say, I, I, I don't wanna imitate my dad. I, but listen, you can change the story. I'm calling you to start change, men, women, I'm calling you to change the story today in your own family. And so guys, here, here's, here's the reality. I only have one bio, biological father, obviously, because that's how that works. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I praise God for him. But I have a handful of spiritual fathers who have poured into my life over the years, and I'm, I'm, I'm better because of that, and I thank God for them as well. And so what we're gonna do over the next six weeks here at Victory, okay, we're gonna do something that we've never done before here in the history of the church. What we're going to do over the next six weeks, we're gonna hear from, after, after this week specifically, we're gonna hear from five men who, this was the qualifications. They were biological fathers, they were spiritual fathers, they were decades-long pastors who loved the church and still loved Jesus' church. And I've invited them to come in over the next five weeks after this week to basically deliver their dear church life letter to you because we have not many fathers. Now listen, we do have fathers, but we don't have many of them. They're there. And I found the ones, the guys, some of the guys who mean the most in the world to me, who are all older than me, who've been doing this for decades and decades, and they're gonna come in and they're gonna give you their dear church life letter. And so today on Father's Day, as you do hear from me, I don't have that many decades uh, underneath me, what I wanna do is I, as we kick this series off, I wanna pass on to you what I've learned from my father. My dad's 76. Um, he uh, was a long-term pastor. He uh, is an incredible husband, father, brother to his, his brother, um, son, pastor for a long time. And he was the type of dad that whenever we found ourselves in certain situations, he wouldn't wait until Sunday to teach me something. As a son, whenever we would come across situations, the same thing I do with you two guys, whenever we come across situations, he would pause, pull aside, and be like, this is what just happened, right? So this is what you need to learn from this situation. And by his life, by his wisdom, 
uh, by his impartation into me, I am the man that I am today because of him. And so I celebrate you today, Dad. He's probably gonna be at one of the services today. Um, so this is what I would simply call the top three things that my father taught me and that I am currently giving to my sons and I wanna give them to you as well. And my dad, he taught me a whole lot of things, but here's specifically what my father taught me. Here's the first thing. He taught me that it takes a lifetime to build a good name, but only a moment to ruin it. I probably heard this 10,000 times growing up. John, he's the only person who calls me John. He said, John, it takes a lifetime to build a good name and only a moment to ruin it. And it was, usually I got that after I did something stupid, right? He kind of pulled me aside as a good dad, put his arm around me. Um, and here's the, here's the idea, guys. This wasn't a scare tactic. This is way before cancel culture. Like, that wasn't even a thing, you know? Um, this was my dad saying, Johnson, your name matters. Your reputation matters. So therefore, what you do matters. The decisions you make matter, right? The, 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 there are implications to what you do in life. So be intentional about what you do and what you don't do. Why? Because it takes a lifetime to build a good name and only a moment to ruin it. See, my dad came from that generation that is slowly fading away. Come on, that, that generation where a handshake still meant something. Come on, where a handshake was just as good as a written contract. Why? Because they still believed in what Jesus said. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Because when I shake your hand and I make eye contact with you, that's my word is my bond. I'm putting my whole life, I'm putting my name, I'm putting my family's name, I'm putting my reputation at stake here. Back when your word used to mean something, because when you made a promise, you stuck to it, because your last name was more important than your first name. Come on, somebody, let that sink in for a second. That's back when your family used to matter. That's back when your family reputation used to matter. And Proverbs 22 says this, a good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. A good name is more desirable than great riches. So here's the question. Here's the question. What comes to people's minds when they hear your name? Maybe even an equally important question is, what do you want to come to people's minds when they hear your name? Listen, when, when people hear my name, I want them to smile. I want people to be encouraged. I want people to, to get a visual image of a, of a generous man, godly man of character who loves his wife, who loves his kids, who loves the church, who gives his life away. That's what I want people to think of. I wanna have a good name because a good name is more desirable than great riches. And so what that means is I'm living in that direction. It's impacting the decisions that I make. Why? Because a good name matters. And it takes a lifetime to build a good name, but then it can, it can vanish in a moment. And see, this, is, this stands out as a stark difference to the world we live in, right? Because the world we live in is you can't judge me, right? Come on. And so you don't have to do this thing. That's old. But you, some people still do that, right? I'm saying? <laughs> like, you can't judge me, right? Like I, um, I saw a, uh, there was a Christian influencer recently, which is still funny to say a Christian influencer, but it's a blue check mark Christian, right, on social media, right? <laughs> a Christian influencer, and they, they listen, y'all might even know this person, but um, what they did, they posted a debatably inappropriate picture this last week, okay? And here's the deal. It wasn't like 
it wasn't that inappropriate, but here, here's, here's what we haven't learned quite yet. It was a picture you keep on your camera and you show to your friends. Not that you put on, on social media for billions of people to be able to see. And here's the thing, he put it out there for the whole world to see. And, and, and you know, here, let's just face it, Christians are the worst. We're the worst, we're the worst, man, when it comes to like, like just backbiting each other. But when people started coming down on it, here was the problem, he doubled down. He doubled, instead of listening, instead of being humble, instead of being like, actually I see what you guys are saying. What he said was, hey, there are other people who hold me accountable in my life, and guess what, you're not one of them. And it was this, you can't judge me. And so here's the problem. Now when I hear his name, I hear it different. I'm like, ah, you can be like, hey, Judgy Judskins, you know what I'm saying? Like, why are you judging everybody? It just is what it is. It takes a lifetime to build a good name. And so we need to be intentional how we handle that name. And so while there may be many Christians who say, you can't judge me, here's what my Bible says. 1 Peter 2.12 says, live such good lives among the pagans that even though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. We need to live, live a life. Listen, is my life shining out like a light into a dark world? Is my life screaming out to a dead world that the tomb is empty and Jesus Christ is alive? Or, or am I too busy living for myself that I forget that I'm actually called to live beyond myself? Listen, I'm not an island. My decisions affect other people. And so while I can sit back and say, you, you can't judge me, listen, you can. Listen, we're, we're, we are accountable to the world. We are accountable first before God and then to live our lives in such a way that we wouldn't defame the name of Christ. Because listen, Paul, in, in his instructions to Timothy about what a Christian leader is supposed to look like, the, literally the last instruction of what a Christian leader is supposed to look like is in 1 Timothy 3, 7. He says this, this person must also have a good reputation with outsiders, non-Christians, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Listen, one of the qualifications for, for a Christian leader is not just that you have a good reputation with Christians, but it's that you have a good reputation with non-Christians. Why does that matter? Why, why isn't it just good enough to have a good reputation in here, but everybody thinks you're a jerk out there? Because I don't wanna be a Pharisee. I don't wanna be a hypocrite who says one thing and does another. I don't wanna be somebody where my, whose lips say I love Jesus, but my life says I love me, right? Because Paul talks about those people in Romans too. He actually says, because of you, the name of Jesus is blasphemed among the Gentiles. In other words, the reason why Jesus is getting so much smack talk in the world today isn't because of Jesus, it's because of how the people live who say that they love him. And so people look at Christians and they're like, I don't want, is that really who this Jesus guy is? I don't want anything to do with that. And that is the devil's trap. That's what Paul says. If you don't have a good reputation, what's gonna end up happening is you're gonna fall into the devil's trap. What's the devil's trap? I'm convinced beyond convinced that this is the devil's trap. That you will be promoted beyond the level that your character can keep you there. And you'll get elevated, 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 where everybody knows your name, but you don't have a strong enough character to keep you in that place. And then you're gonna be public in the, in the eyes of the public, and then you're gonna have a public fall, and everybody's gonna stand back and say, see, that's why I don't follow Jesus. And listen, we all know that that doesn't hold up in heaven. 
Come on, somebody. Like, it's not like somebody's gonna get, you know, die and stand in front of God and be like, hey, the reason why I didn't follow you is because of that guy. And God's gonna be like, oh, you're right. Come on in. My bad. <laughs> My B. <laughs> we know it doesn't hold up, but here's the thing. Let me just say this, guys. I don't want my name to be on people's lips when they go to hell. What would happen if we actually lived such lives that we could say, follow me as I follow Christ? Not, not saying do as I do, and do as I say, don't do as I do, right? What would happen if we could actually say, what I say is what I do? What I say is what I do. Because the world doesn't need more people who say they follow Jesus. The world needs more people who actually follow Jesus. And I wanna live in such a way that I bring honor to the Lord and honor to my family. Because it takes a lifetime to build a good reputation. It's only a moment to see it fall apart. And that's the first thing that my dad taught me. The second thing my dad taught me was this, how a man is to treat a woman. Come on, somebody. In fact, I wanna pause right here and I want to give it up for the fathers here who are teaching their sons how to treat a woman. It's happening. I see it. It's happening. It's beautiful. It's rare. It's rare in the world. And so it stands out. It stands out. Here, here's the thought, guys. The statistics are incredibly disheartening when it comes to this area. I'll just look at three quick statistics right here. Every nine seconds a woman is beaten by a man. One out of every six women have been the victim of rape. And boys who witness their father's violence are 10 times more likely to engage in spouse abuse. Whoa. But I grew up in a house where when it was time for dinner, my dad would walk over and pull my mom's chair out. And whenever we were going to the car, he would walk ahead of her and he would open up the door for her. And whenever we were going inside a store, he would walk ahead of her and he would hold the door open for her. And so you better believe when I got old enough, which was like four, <laughs> the same thing was happening with me, right? Every single dinner, hey, if I was already sitting down, cause you know kids are like, <laughs> could we have to wait until we pray for the food? Like, can I eat? You know, I'm sitting there and then my mom's like been slaving for four hours, but I just showed up and I'm ready to eat, right? And so she's about to sit down. My dad's always like, John, stand up and go pull your, your mom's chair out. You pull it out, help it push it back in as a little kid, right? <laughs> and we're walking to the car. And my, if my mom was in front, he'd say, John, go walk ahead of your mom. And even if I was in the car, he'd make me get out of the car and go open up the car door for, for mom to come in. And, you know, whenever we were going into a store, he'd have me walk ahead. He'd say, John, open up the, the door for your mom. And in fact, there's like all these other people just stand there and hold the door open for them as well. Like... <laughs> They've already finished dinner. I'm still standing at the door. <laughs> and God forbid if my mom asked me a question and I said, yes. You know what I heard from the other room? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> yes, ma'am. That was just, that, and, and I, I didn't have language for it at the time. But what I was witnessing in my dad was somebody who used their strength to serve instead of always demanding to be served. And what I see in Jesus is somebody who uses his power and somebody who uses his strength to serve instead of always demanding to be served. And we see this at the Last Supper, right? 
John 13, three, says Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So, stop, don't read ahead. I think, now think, think critically about this. I think the words that come after so may be in the top 10, top five, top three most important words in the entire Bible, right? Because whatever comes after so shows us what you do with strength, shows us what you do when you're the one with power. Come on, let, let me rephrase it. For you, you know you have all the power, all the strength, all things are under your control, so. What do you do with that? You have all, you're not, you're not accountable to anybody. So, do you use and abuse? Do you take? Do you grab? Do you control it? Let's find out what Jesus did. Jesus knew the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So, he got up from the meal took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around them. Jesus knew he had power, so he used that power to serve instead of demanding to be served. This is what the Bible calls a fruit of the Spirit. There's nine fruits of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Another translation of gentleness is meekness, meekness or gentleness. The, the, the quick and easy definition of, of meekness is this, controlled strength. Controlled strength. Now get this. A while back, I was listening to a fascinating podcast. Um, where a family researcher was, was on, and I kid you not, he spent 30 minutes, 30 solid, fascinating, amazing, mind-blowing minutes talking about the power of what happens when fathers wrestle with their sons in a healthy way, when fathers wrestle with their sons. And he said, hey guys, there's more here than meets the eye right? What happens when there's, when there's healthy wrestling, when there's healthy um, competition between fathers and sons? He said there's eye contact, there's strength, there's bonding, there's competition. But he said, actually, and this is what blew my mind. He said this, there's so many little dynamics going on. He said probably the greatest one is this, is that when a father wrestles his son, it's gentleness. It's meekness. And here's what he was saying, controlled strength. When as a child, and I still do this with my sons a little bit, right? Uh, sometimes you just gotta show them who's boss. <laughs> um, but when, I, when I'm the child, right? When I'm pinned down, I want you to notice, things aren't even being spoken, but they're being learned. When I'm pinned down, I'm learning I'm not always in control. When I'm pinned down, I'm learning that I don't always win. What would happen if the men of America knew that they don't always get to win? See, there's something that happens when I know, literally, we're not saying this, but I know this, this guy's like 10 times bigger than me. He could kill me right now, but he doesn't. 
That means, as I'm pinned down, that means that I'm learning that I don't destroy people when we go toe-to-toe. Controlled strength. There's something that happens when I see that he could be much rougher with me, but he's not. That means there's an appropriate level of strength depending on the situation that you find yourselves in. You don't come at everything 100 miles an hour. And when he overuses his strength and accidentally hurts me, and he says, I'm sorry, what that imparts to me is, it's possible for me to overuse my strength, and when I do, I need to apologize for it because that wasn't okay. But when boys don't learn these lessons about gentleness, then they don't use their strength to serve. They end up using their strength to dominate, which is how you get boys abusing girls, which is how you get spousal abuse, husbands beating wives. This is, this is how you get bullying. This is how you get rape. The, listen, the entire pornography industry is built off of males, come on, not men, males who never grew up to become men who knew how to use their strength to serve. And all they know how to do is use their strength to dominate and take. And so what I'm calling the men of this house to do is to leave boyhood behind. Stop being a grown boy with peach fuzz on your face. Actually grow up into Christ likeness and learn how to use your strength to serve the world around you instead of take from the world around you. And maybe you didn't have a dad in your life who taught you those things, and some of you have just learned those things along the way, but if you don't know where to look to, look to Jesus. Because Jesus knew what to do with power. Jesus did not use his power to take, Jesus used his power to give. So be like Jesus. Serve the world and the women in the world around you. And ladies, let me say this. If you're dating a male, not a man, if you're dating a male who's using his strength to get from you instead of give to you, you need to at least walk away. You may need to run away. Get out of that relationship. You can do better than that. God has better for you. Listen, if you're in an abusive situation, you need to ask for help. And we'll have leaders down, down front at the end of service where, where you can get that help. Um, ladies, if you're looking for someone to marry and that male does not use his strength to serve, then you need to walk away for it. Listen, put him back in the oven. Turn it up to 350 or so. Just leave him for a little bit and see what happens. All right? Don't, don't be like, I'll marry him and that'll fix it. I got a line of ladies you can talk to out, out in the lobby who tell you, don't do, don't do that trick. Don't, don't try and like save him to Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Like, like I'll date him to Jesus. That results in what's called galvation. It's a theological term where you meet a, a girl and automatically you get salvation. So that's galvation. And then that's not real. Um, that's, a, that's a church boy, which you don't want. And let me say this, moms, uh, single moms, uh, you, you, you obviously know this, but you raise boys differently than girls. And here's what I'd say. Don't be afraid to put your young son in an aggressive sport. Because sometimes, maybe the best thing for him is to get smacked around a little bit. I'm, ser- I'm real. I'm being serious. 
If you really, like karate, wrestling, or a team sport, I'm telling you, when you have to learn how to control your strength and when there's appropriate places to use their strength and there's appropriate places not to use that strength, be, be, listen, what we need to do as men, and moms come at it from your way, dads come at it from your way, we need to learn to use our strength for service, not for selfishness. And that will stand out and that will shine bright in this world where we learn how to use our strength for service, not for selfishness. And that's the second thing my dad taught me. Here's the third thing my dad taught me, is to put Jesus first. I know that sounds so cliche, but you better believe that was real in my house. We put Jesus first. I grew up in a house where we were, uh, my dad was the pastor, so we were in church every single time the doors were open. Now let me qualify that statement, I had this realization. Um, That means something different in the Presbyterian church than it did in your church. So maybe you grew up like black Baptist, which is totally different than white Baptist, if nobody knew that. Totally different, it's Bapticostal, like that's totally different than the Baptist that I grew up with. So when you hear you're at the church every single time the doors are open, you're there like 73 times a week. Um, we had the church doors open like once, you know what I'm saying, or maybe twice, or twice a week, you know what I'm saying. Um, but we were there for Sunday school, we were there for church. When I got old enough, um, we, were, we were there for youth group. We were there because Jesus was a priority in our family. And I specifically remember one particular incident. Um, I was in middle school. I still remember this. I'm sitting in the back seat, and uh, we're driving down the road. We were by, my, by one of my schools. And uh, I was playing some all-star like travel ball, uh, baseball sort of stuff at that time. And um, it was, I remember this. It was during the summertime, and we had a Sunday game. And that was very rare at that time. Like today, it's like, that's just what it is. But at that time, culture still kind of respected, you know, um, church. Doesn't any, anymore. But we had, we had a game on Sunday, and I remember my coach wanted me there. And so I'm talking in the car like we're going to that game. And my parents kind of like chuckle in the front seat, and they're like, Johnson, we're going to church. And I'm like, oh, oh, how dare you deprive me? of my opportunity for greatness, you know what I'm saying? To go and be the star pitcher at this game. And I I remember I was so upset, but it marked me. You wanna know why I know that it marked me? Because I still remember it 30 years later. (laughs) I literally remember where I was, where I was sitting, the angle and the conversation 30 years later when my parents came in and established our family priorities because it was so contradictory to my priorities. And, and here, let, let me add another letter on this. I wasn't even a Christian. I was a churchian. You know, a churchian, like I was just a professional churchgoer, right? <laughs> I didn't want anything to do with Jesus. I just, my parents took me to church. So I was a church kid. But I didn't have the basis, I didn't have the internal, internal wiring to know my own priorities. At that time, honestly, my priorities were baseball. But what, when they said that, what it showed me was there's something about this Jesus guy that even though I don't agree with it, I know my parents believe that that's more important than what I think is important. So I need to pay attention to this. And here's what it did. It planted seeds inside me that a few years later, you know, this was when I was probably 11, 12, when I was 14, I got born again. So those seeds grew up and they bore fruit and it was good fruit. And I, I go back 
Because when I finally heard that call to Christ come out, I was like, oh, this lines up with what mom and dad have been showing me for all these years, that Jesus really is first. Now, here's the deal, guys. I'm not your kid's parent, obviously. You are, and so you have to make the decision on how you are parenting or how you will parent one day when you have kids. But here's what I know. It takes time from the time when you plant seeds to the time that you see fruit. And I would hate for the time that, by the time you see that fruit, it's not good fruit and it's too late. So this is when you need to rewind back to moments like this and you need to listen to somebody, not only who has my own sons, but is who, who's talked to hundreds, if not thousands of parents who've gone through their own process of raising their kids and establishing family priorities. Because every action we take and every decision we make is speaking about the priorities of our family. And I've talked to parents, listen, I, just one particularly comes to mind. I've talked to parents who have done the travel ball thing and they're like, oh, we're in South Carolina this week, and you know, we're in North Carolina that week, then we're in New York for the gymnastic meet, or you know, whatever it is, right? And it's, it's, it's out of the heart to, that you wanna like, give your kids opportunities. I get all that. I'm not calling you a bad parent, but what I'm saying is this. I've talked to the parents who took their kids everywhere, gave them every single opportunity, and specifically one who said, my kids were in the point zero, 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 one percent that they all went pro. They all went pro. All my kids were professional, paid, big money athletes in all their fields, and it was the worst thing ever. Because I had spent their whole foundational early childhood telling them that sports was number one. But then my lips were saying Jesus is number one. And now they're addicted, they're divorced. One of them doesn't even know where their kids are. And she actually begged me. She said, the next time you're up here and the next time you're talking about this, would you please tell everybody, don't do it. It's not worth it. It's not worth it to sacrifice your kid's future for their present. And I talked to parents on Sundays who were like, oh, you know, my, my 11-year-old just didn't have a good experience that one time, and so they're at home, you know, with their, with their, with their sister. Nah, man, nah. Nah. Oh, my, my 15-year-old just really doesn't like coming to youth group. Um, let me say it in the Greek, heck nah. <laughs> deal with it. For real, deal with it. Listen, your kids don't set the priorities or else they're the parent now. If you let your kids set the priorities, just go ahead and give them the keys. Give them the keys to the house, just go ahead and sign your job over to them. You go back to school and let them go work, right? You as the parent set the priorities for the home. I can't do that for you. You have to do it. And one of the most loving things that we can do to our kids, listen, is to sometimes drag them kicking and screaming into situations that they don't wanna be in, but we're doing it because we love them. And what we're doing is we're establishing the priorities for their life. We are planting seeds. We're watering those seeds and we're trusting that some plant and some water, but God makes it grow. And by the time the fruit comes, it's gonna be good fruit. It's gonna be good fruit. And let me just say this, if you're online, especially during this time, I need to say this. 
I know there are a thousand different reasons why you may be streaming online right now, thousand different, and 980 of them are valid, okay? Um, some of you are in other countries and you can't make it here. Others of you, you're in different states. Yes, okay? Where my red flags start going off is for the handful of people who are right now are casually watching at home. And you live close to a campus. And I'm concerned for you, mom and dad. But more importantly, I'm concerned for your kids. Because when you're at home, casually watching the service, when you live 15 minutes away from a campus, don't be naive to not believe that that's sending a message about priorities to your children. Because we invest heavy into the next generation here. Heavy, millions of dollars, lots of staff, lots of volunteers, lots of facilities, from birth all the way up through young adult, we do. But it's not the same online. It's not the same digitally. Your, your kid's whole life is digital right now. They need to be around tactile. They need to be around eye contact. They need to be around men and women instructors who love them alongside you, who can call them up in the Lord who can train them up, disciples making disciples, planting these seeds on the inside of them, and they can't get the same thing online. And what I'm saying is this, we may love Jesus with, with our mouth, but what does our life say? What do our decisions say? What do our priorities say? What does our time say? What does our money say? What do our conversations say around the dinner table? What are we putting in our family that shows our family and shows our kids and shows the world around us that Jesus is first? Because those last words of the Old Testament are still relevant for us today. Malachi 4, verse five, we read it earlier. I'm gonna stress a different line. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. God is not just interested in your heart. God's interested in your kids' hearts. God wants your kids' hearts. He says he's gonna send Elijah, and there's this type and shadow thing that happens right at the beginning of the New Testament. It says that John the Baptist comes in the spirit and the power of Elijah, and what he does, he prepares the way for the Lord. He prepares the way for Jesus, and Jesus comes on the scene, and what does Jesus do? Jesus restores the hearts of the children back to the hearts of the Father. That's what Jesus came to do. Not just the adults, every single one of us, our kids too, to restore our hearts, the children's hearts, back to the heart of the Father. And God is most interested in the direction of our heart. Is our heart pointed towards him? Is our heart pointed away from him? If our heart's pointed away from what he wants to do today, he wants to turn our hearts away from us, away from our way that we're going, turn our hearts back to the heart of the Father. The question is, are we putting Jesus first? Here's what I wanna do. I wanna, as we close, I wanna, I wanna read you a letter. Here's my dear church to you. My beloved, the God of the universe knows you. He really knows you. He knows you because he created you you were made in the image of the everlasting God. 
He made every part of you and took his very breath and breathed life into your lungs. Before the foundations of the world were set, he had you in mind. You were fearfully and wonderfully made. And when God looks at you, he sees his child, his son, his daughter. And he thinks of you so much that it is inconceivable how often you are on his mind. You belong to him and he loves you. God has so many wonderful plans for you, plans of hope and plans for the future. He will never harm you or ignore you. God will never ever turn his back on you. Listen to me, God loves you. I realize you may have had experiences of what a father shouldn't be and shouldn't do, and I'm sorry for every person that has hurt you or wounded you. I'm sorry for every bad example of a father you've experienced, but that wasn't the character of God. You must understand that people will always fall short, but he never will. Even if all of your earthly fathers fail you, remember that your heavenly father never will. Listen to me, God is for you. And the crazy thing is that he loves you, not because of anything you've done, not because of accomplishments or awards or what others think of you. Your father loves you simply because you're his child. So when you mess up, when you get weak and when you stumble, get back up and keep running to him. Your father will always be there, arms stretched wide, ready to receive you again. Please don't hide from him. He wants all of you, not just the presentable parts you show to everyone else. Allow your father to search your heart, showing you areas that are dark, and then allow the light of Jesus to illuminate every part of you. The bottom line is this. Your heavenly father wants relationship with you. He wants the kind of connection that will never be broken. And he wants that connection because he loves you more than you'll ever know. He is a very, very good father. He loves you forever and always. And there is nothing you can ever do to change that. I'm for you, your pastor. We actually have these for you when you leave today. You'll be able to get these. Every, every single one of you can get a copy of this and hold on to this. Just remember that God sees you, God hears you, God is for you. And in fact, today, this may even be the first time you've ever said this to him. Happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day, Dad. Let's bow our heads, let's pray. Father, I confess this many times, we take you for granted. God, everything good we have comes from you, is a gift from God above. And right now we give you honor and glory and praise for what you've done, for saving our souls, that even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All praise be to God, Christ died for us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you that we are children of God through faith in Jesus. And even where earthly fathers may have disappointed us, God, you step in. And God, I even pray that this Father's Day over those who don't have a father, maybe a father's passed on, maybe a father was never present. God, I pray in a real and a tangible way, you would step in and you would be father today in a way that maybe we haven't experienced before. And so we say to you, God, happy Father's Day. But here's what I know, there are people here, there's people online who can't really call God father. 
because you're not part of the family. See, we're all created by God, but we're children of God through faith in Jesus. That's how we walk through the door and come into the family. But the good news is this, the door is open wide today. And the invitation is here to step into this family. And so the call, the the Father's calling us. And so maybe today you say, today I wanna become a child of God through faith in Jesus. Well, here's what I wanna do. I wanna lead you in a prayer. And so I'm, I'm gonna pray, and won't you repeat after me and family of God around these guys, let's, let's pray this together. Let's pray like this. Say, Jesus, thank you for giving your life so I could live. You died for my sins on the cross to make a way for me to come into the family. So today, I believe that. I receive that. And so I turn from my sin. I repent and I receive you, Jesus Christ, as my Lord, as my Savior. I put my hope and my trust in you. And because of that, I am forgiven, I am free, I am a child of God. And today, God, you are my Father. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen, amen, amen.